Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My guest today is Dr. David Martin, who is currently the Chief Scientist and Director of Performance at Apiron Life, a Bay Area performance research health science startup. Dr. Martin has 35 years of experience working with professional and Olympic-level athletes and building high-performance teams. He spent four years as the Director of Performance Research and Development for the Philadelphia 76ers NBA team. Dr. Martin began his career at the Australian Institute of Sport. After receiving his PhD in Zoology and Physiology from the University of Wyoming and his Master's of Exercise Physiology from Northern Michigan University, he is an accomplished applied sports scientist with more than 110 peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Martin also served as the National Sports Science Coordinator for Cycling Australia. I hope you enjoy this episode. Dr. David Martin, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on the Training Peaks Coachcast. It's great to catch up, Dirk. Yeah, like, you know, we were chatting and we've been on a lot of uh, email and communications together. Don't think I've ever met, but you've sort of certainly been the center of a lot of great innovation um, in Olympic sports primarily is what I've been involved with um, when when um, having communicated with you. You've done a whole lot, I mean, over the decades. And give our listeners a little bit of more background as to you know your career and where you're at now. Okay. I think um, things kind of differentiated after uh, finishing my, my master's degree. I landed one of those um, research assistantship roles at the U.S. Olympic Committee in Colorado Springs. And um, that really opened up a lot of doors and you started to meet a lot of people. That was back in the days with Chris Carmichael when he yeah. was at the Olympic Training Center and you know right. Lance Hincapi, all the... The guys that became quite famous, they were all juniors at the time, and we were having these junior elite camps that they would come into. Um, I was really interested in in cycling, probably more interested in skiing. I was a cross-country skier, but I loved cycling because you could put a power meter on the bicycle. And in the late 80s, um, the whole Uli Schrober yes. just made this SRM power meter available and only the select few, you know, only the, yeah. the really people that were in the know could access them. And if you could access them, it's like, could you get them to work and how did you calibrate them? And um, so those are, those are pretty exciting times um, in 88, 89. And then I did my doctoral studies up at university of Wyoming, but um, I was really uh, lucky to be able to do a, a couple of my uh, PhD studies down in Colorado Springs with the, um, the, the track cyclists, um, particularly the pursuit cyclists. Um, and funny enough, too, the students that I had, I was a doctoral student. There were some undergrads that were keen cyclists, and uh, I, I kind of recruited them in to help me with some of these studies I was doing in, in Colorado Springs. And one was Dean Gulich, who some people might know. He's, he's still very heavily involved in you know innovative aspects of high-performance sport and the other was um, Jim Miller, who yep. has um, you know spent a lot of time with you guys, but also yep. been a really um, big mover and shaker with um, you know team, team USA in the cycling world. Absolutely. Um, 
I had thought I was going to, I was always looking for jobs at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, but um, interestingly enough, a, a job opened up at the Australian Institute of Sport, and I talked my wife into it. It was like a two-year job before the 96 Olympics. They wanted a yank, they call it, you know, mm -hmm. a yank to come out that knew all the mountains and all the rides that you could do in Colorado because they were going to put their road cycling team um, into some altitude camps before the 96 Olympics. And they thought, Hey, this guy, you know, he might, he might be the guy to kind of help nice. lead us through that. So off I went to the Australian Institute of Sport with my, I just recently been married and I thought, you know, two years would, would probably do it. Then, <laughs> then the Sydney Olympics came along yeah, and that was super exciting. So I had to had to stay for that, and um, you know that's back in the days of you know Brad McGee and Robbie McEwen and Matt White, and you know these these are you know Cadell Evans, young up and coming cyclists that weren't on the map yet. And uh, Heiko Salzvedel was the head of this road cycling program, and it was it was it was really exciting. So after Sydney, I got a promotion to move into being a national sports science coordinator with Cycling Australia, and. Um, and so I stayed on. I thought, well, there's some projects we hadn't really finished up. And we went into Athens, which was a gold rush for Australia. I think, you know, six gold medals. And um, Sarah Kerrigan won gold first event. It just it just kept happening. There was world right. records and gold medals. And they were just really on top of the world in 2004. And so then I was like, wow, this is going good. You know, got some more projects. And so I uh, went to Beijing and London with um, Cycling Australia as well. Um, and then a really interesting thing happened where just before the Rio Olympics, um, a coach that I had heard of, he was an American, but he'd coached the Australian um, the national basketball team. He got a job with the Philadelphia 76ers who were horrific. They were like one of the worst teams in the entire NBA. And uh, they got a new general manager called Sam Hinkie. And he came in with new owners, and it was like they were thinking big, big budgets, big facility, big hires, you know, new programs, science-led. And they said, you, you got an opportunity to come in and, and lead this build from the support staff side. Um, wow. So back I came to the U.S. I was on a four-year contract with that program, and um, – and then that's when I met Jeff Yang, and he said, you should think about coming out to the Bay Area. There's some really neat people. I think you'd find it really exciting. There's a lot of fun stuff going on, and um, it just seemed like they're at the right time. I'd already heard, always heard of Silicon Valley, always heard of the, the big tech companies and all the smart, smart people coming in here. And I just thought it was my, – my kids had just gone into university, and I thought this was the time to – to, to, to connect and to try to learn and, and see how this, how this world works. So that's my life in a nutshell. Yeah. That's several decades. And yeah. there's, <laughs> there's this, there's this great theme where you, you start at the bottom, uh, you know, the 76ers cycling Australia and then leave at the top. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I haven't told you about that's um, good. how that's to good. get fired from these, but no, <laughs> you're right. You're right. I, I love the underdog and I love the startup and I love, you know, there's a lot of people in, in my business and they kind of float in when teams are going really well, really well. And they kind of hang out with them and watch them win. And I kind of love the idea of coming in when things are bad and trying right. to be part of building hope and then, you know, watching it. You still hang out while they win, but it's kind yeah. of fun to watch it grow. I love the thought too of bringing your, this, I mean, you have the roots and endurance, but you bring that into NBA 
and other sports. Um, you know, Dean Gulich is now like with Red Bull F1, you know, and he's yeah. high performance for, for Red Bull. And, and he came from endurance as well. Um, you know, you're, you become this jack of all trades. How many different sports have you worked with? I mean, 50 yeah, plus, I, I mean, I, winter, uh, summer Olympics. Yeah. I've, um, I, at the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, and also when I was in Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center, they'd have lots of camps and you would meet all kinds of different athletes, barefoot water skiers, fin swimmers. <laughs> in Australia, I, I had a camp, it was called Polo Cross. It's like luck cross, three horses going against each other in these chakas. And, wow. um, and I was taking blood lactates and monitoring heart rates off of horses yeah. and wow. riders. Um, so you get, it's great. You get a, you get a wide, wide selection uh, of different, um, sports that you get to, you know, uh, gravitate towards and play with. So, yeah, no, I've got to, I've, I've been able to try a lot of sports, but my love's always been, uh, skiing and cycling have, have really attracted me. And it's funny how you can fall in love with a new sport, like the NBA, um, I've been to a lot of big events, like big events, I thought. A lot of outdoor events, cycling events, ski events. I'd right. been at opening ceremonies, big Olympic, you know, things. But wow, when you're in an NBA game and it's close and it's pumping and thumping and it's playoffs and the crowd is local and, you know, Philadelphia is half crazy. Um, it's okay. got its own particular rush to it. And it's got its own particular challenges. I think through all of it, you're really just a problem solver. You're really looking at um, what are priorities and how do we build progressions and how do you connect with athletes and coaches and how do you troubleshoot and bring kind of innovative, elegant solutions to difficult, tricky problems and, and then translate them. That's, that remains the task. But yet you, th you may know the super secret, but you have to sell it as well. Like you can't bring it in too early. Like I have the secret sauce, you know, they have to, you have to have this buy-in. Yeah. I mean, early on, no one believes in you at all. And then if you hang out with winners, like once Cadell, you know, when Cadell won the tour right. once after he'd won the world championships and everybody's like, Oh, this is Dave. He worked with Cadell, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and you get a little bit of a, like an, like an aura about uh -huh. you, even though you're the same person and every challenge is equally as, as, you hard. know, I have a philosophical question here to kind of kick things off too. Mm. You can take this, this different ways, but is science behind what athletes do? Meaning, is it behind lagging behind or is it behind? And therefore it's the reason athletes do what they do. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's obviously scenarios where, where both have happened, where coaches have moved into feeding strategies or tapering strategies or preparation strategies that have kind of preceded contemporary knowledge and, you know, train with low carbohydrate, compete with high carbohydrate. People are like, we were doing that 20 years ago, you know, or a specificity of training where people go out and do course recon, you know, and all of a sudden now it's the rage and you know, skill acquisition specialists are talking about familiarity of courses for ideal pacing. Um, there's certain positions that people have worked out that are really, really fast. And we later go into the wind tunnel and find out they're really, really fast. Right. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's kind of uh, innovative uh, strategies where, where the scientists, I think, you know, have led and they've stumbled on like, let's, 
live high and promote our hemoglobin mass and let's train low and really neuromuscularly let's let's recruit all these muscle fibers so i think i think there's a, a mix but what i like to tell everybody is um in this day of everybody trying to get a competitive edge you got to think about who you're putting on your team and so if you want to be world-class now at the olympic games or you want to be world-class even in pro sport i think it's getting harder and harder um, to believe in a team that has no um, no science in it. There's no dietitians. There's no psychologists. There's no biomechanists. There's no physiologists. You know, there's right. there's no one. It's just a it's just a coach. Not even with a science degree. He's just a, just a guy. He's charismatic. He knows his stuff. I right. mean, it's getting harder and harder to believe in that. I think right. that because you look around and fear of missing out's brutal, and you look around and you're like, "Whoa, what do the Germans have? Whoa, what do the Australians have? Hey, what's going? Look at New Zealand. You know, the Dutch are coming in with that." And so, I feel like you kind of it, it's escalating all the competition to a level where you want to feel calm and confident in your team, and I think having a group of reputable, you know, science-minded specialists supporting you helps you feel better about how you're going to win today, but how you're going to grow your programs into the future. Yeah. And the first thing I thought of when you were discussing that was these young athletes or athletes new to the sport that immediately go right to the podium where it used to be maybe more suspect, but now it's, wow, they have so much science behind them. I, I think of Remco Evanpool, mm. who's who's second place right now in the Giro, and he's 20 years old. And even Matthew Vanderpool, who wins everything he's in from cyclocross yeah. to mountain bike. He's going to the Olympics for mountain bike, but yet he's doing that two weeks after he does the Tour de France. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, is, is, is it the science that is... The, the the protocols, the practice, practicality of the training that's making these guys better earlier? I think that um, it can help with the um, the, the belief. Um, and, and it can, I remember coming into, you know, mountain bike when Cadell started as a mountain biker. And right. um, the, the, the coaching staff and the kind of the the mantra and the belief system was um, it's suit mountain bikes is the hardest of all endurance sport because it's so technical and it's got this endurance challenge and it takes years to hone your craft. And so you'll never win a world championship or win a world cup until you're in your thirties. It takes that long to really, really get good at it. And everybody would say, look at all the prevailing top mountain bikers, you know, that were in the, in that kind of, you know, 80s to 90s, they're, they're older. And, and then, you know, Cadell, like, I guess he didn't pay attention. I remember us doing <laughs> testing on him and he would say, like, what do these tests mean? And we'd say, look, we've calibrated the equipment. We've tested lots and lots of cyclists. You know, your, your aerobic capacity is phenomenal. Your watts per kg at sustainable workloads is, is just insane. Um, you're very skilled. It, you, you, I've read the literature. I've talked to people. I've tested some of the top cyclists in the world. You're you're there, if not better. I've never seen numbers <laughs> like this. So, I think that can help. You know, people start to mm, right. shortcut. They, they start right. to reposition. Like, why couldn't I win? Why right. why couldn't I win? And then you start. They start getting opportunities earlier too. Sometimes there's a big pecking order, and if there's a real traditional kind of selection process, you won't even get chosen for Olympics when you're too young. Even if you had a couple brilliant wins, they're just like he's not ready yet. 
But as people start to understand the sciences of what is required to win, and they see you've got a lot of the underpinning ingredients to win, I think it opens up some doors. And, and yeah, things can move a little bit quicker. Yeah, I didn't even mention Tom Pidcock, who won the most recent World Cup mountain bike race. And he was on Ineos. And he may not even go to the Olympics because Great Britain... I don't even know the latest, but they haven't even qualified for the Olympics. And he's number one in the world. And he's, I think, 19 years old. It's, I mean, he, and again, my, my, my most of my experience was, was Cadell going around the world with him and watching him as an 18, 19-year-old just, you know, just absolutely blow people away and just having fun and just complete disregard for the, the hierarchy that's supposed to win these races. And absolutely. And also, um, it, it's um, you know all you take is a, is a couple. Uh, the, the young athletes are not as uh, traditional with their approaches. They will try yep. stuff. You know, mm-hmm. Cadell would do altitude training camps, heat training camps. He would try different you know nutrition periodized approaches. He would um, try longer tapers. He would uh, r- race courses with power meters on so he could build up. You know. Um, workout profiles that mimic some of the demands. So, yeah. so they're open and they're they're like, let's do it. Yeah, let's try it. Anything to win. Whereas sometimes the older guys are like, don't mess with me. That doesn't work. Hey, don't touch my bike. Hey, man, yep. you know that's that's BS. That doesn't work. And um, and so the young hungry ones start jumping in over the top of them. Yeah, I remember actually working with Cadell, and I think it was Predictor Lotto. And the older athletes, you know, wouldn't even we we couldn't even get them to log into Training Peaks, right? Yeah. We were big, big yeah. we were a big brother, and we were going to somehow find out what they were doing, you know. Yeah. But but I remember the Christmas week, I, I was on the phone with Cadell, and he's like, I, "I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. Like, how do I do this? What's the TSS? What's the PMC? What's the CTL mean? You know?" And yeah. he was reaching out, and he was actually the only one on the team that did that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that was, anyways, great stories. And actually, by the way, another great story. I raced with Cadell in Redlands. Oh, did you like, really? Redlands, like yeah. Los Angeles, California yeah. stage race. <laughs> Isn't that great? Way uh, back. Now he was intense, you know, and his whole career is kind of interesting because, um, he always lost so much. He was always like second or third or fourth or third or second, you know, and, you know, Sydney Olympics, when this is it, you're going to win it, you know, and you don't get a medal and, you know, you're up for world championships multiple times, junior world champions, second, second, you know, you had lots of, this is the year you're going to win the tour. You're off the podium. You're, you didn't (laughs) win it. You know, and uh, it's interesting. I think how some careers, um, you know, you can say like you you were ready and you had your opportunity, but it didn't happen. But hang in there because your time is right. Think of Matthew Heyman and Perry Roubaix, you know, oh, over yeah. and over and over trying and well, trying and trying yes. and, then, and then it cracks. And I think sometimes where like training peaks has been good and some of the monitoring is people can say that you did have the win for your fitness. Your fitness was there. The, the tactics and the strategy didn't work for you. Uh, maybe there was a, you know, a mishap and a crash. But look at the sustainable powers. Look at, you know, how fast you were going for the power. Look at, you know, how many high-intensity repeat sprints you're able to put together during that big day. And I think that gives people confidence that even though I didn't win, I'm, I'm capable of, my fitness was capable of winning. Whereas in the old days, all you had was a mm, loss. You know, right. you, you lost. You didn't get, you didn't win. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, we're going to jump into some more specifics here. And you're the jack of all trades. Yeah. You've seen a lot of this in men, applied in many different sports, different ways. Um, I, I'd love to hear maybe even like what sports may have adopted certain things and others have totally ignored it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, HRV, wearables, uh, the whoop, the aura ring, you know, is this being, what are your thoughts around that? Is it being used a ton in the NBA and not in cycling, or is it the opposite? Like, what yeah. do you, what's your take on HRV? There's um, there's two kind of ways to to go into the world of of heart rate variability. Um, w- one of them is you you meet you know Martin Boucher, or you meet some researchers who have been doing some work with heart rate variability. Or you've done a couple studies or projects yourself, and you get interested, and so you find you know something like a just a polar heart rate meter and you export the data and you run it through some code and you, you kind of start looking at these, uh, these kind of spectral analysis and, and you come up with what parameters seem interesting to you and you start to iterate a bit and you have these working hypotheses. I wonder what will happen with heart rate variability when we get really tired and go into a taper. And I wonder if those that really lose heart rate variability, do they bounce up or is it Another really warning signing, sign that we've gone too far and we take a taper, but we don't get any bounce out of it. And so you kind of work it up on your own. That's one way to go into it. That's a real mm-hmm. scientist way to go into it. Um, and then the other way to go is you might be newer on the scene and um, Whoop says, I'm going to do this for you. Or Garmin says, I'm going to do this for you. Or there's a company and they'll say, you know, um, for, for HRV, these guys will say, we, we're going to do it for you. We've done the heavy lifting for you. And we've got some protocols, follow us. And so mm-hmm. then you've got to decide whether those protocols that, you know, a company that's marketing a product, whether that's going to be useful for you. And there, there seem to be the two angles. And both angles can be problematic. If you're doing it all yourself, it takes a a long time to figure out what you're doing. Um, And if you're using somebody else's models, then those models, you might get false positives where you think the data is speaking to you, whoops, saying, whoa, stress, strain, be careful. This is too much. Back off. And you back off too much and you don't load enough. And all you get is a fresh, not, not very fast athlete. Mm-hmm. And you can't blame that on Whoop. That's not their fault. That's your fault because you you just kind of blindly went with it and just said, I'm going to let these algorithms drive the way I engage with this athlete. Um, I think the prudent way to go, if, if you're lucky, like with heart rate variability, I mean, I started looking at heart rate variability in the late, that was part of my PhD research. Uh. We just thought it was so cool back in the 80s, you know, salivary hormones were so new and heart rate variability was so new. And we thought if we could piece it all together, we'd, we'd have the ultimate package. Um, I think that probably the prudent way to go with heart rate variability is you, um, you say, we're going to, we're going to monitor it and we're going to, we're going to um, have it as a signal that sits beside what we do. It doesn't dictate whether you train or don't train. It doesn't dictate how long your taper is. I'm not going to make too much out of it. I'm going to use this as a reference variable. And you know, over a year, it's there. And I'm going to see if there's trends or patterns or insights that come out of having that those data right beside me. And if I do see some stuff, and as an athlete, you see it and I see it, then we can start to use that signal to help modulate um, our action plans. We're going to, it's going to, it's going to influence us. Um, but probably my, my take home message is if you just go after almost any product that tells you when someone's tired or when they're not tired and you, if you rely on that too much, you might miss out and you might get yourself in trouble. 
Um, and you got to be really careful telling the athlete, I'm going to get this. It's going to be great for you. And then you start using it, but the data feedback doesn't really jive with how they're feeling and how they're performing and what right. they think works for them. And you stick with the tech instead of stick with the athlete. I'd give up on the tech before you give up on the athlete. <laughs> good, good advice for coaches. What about, um, you know, the, the whoop? or uh, for sleep monitoring? Yeah, so um, we've been following um, the literature. Shona Halson, a colleague of mine, has done a couple studies now. She's looked at WHOOP and realized, you know, good on WHOOP. They're very popular and they are um, refining things rapidly. And I love the graphics, like, you know, hats off. If there were awards that went off for software with beautiful infographics and a real pleasing experience. I think whoop is impressive. Like I think a lot would agree. It's a, it's a beautiful experience. Um, the, the wrist worn, um, you know, sleep architecture, the way they structure the sleep architecture, uh, is definitely not perfect. It's definitely not, you know, like polysonography where you're, you're actually looking at brain waves and really hardwiring sleep architecture. Um, whether it can pick up sleep latency super accurately, whether it's perfect for picking up how many hours of sleep, um, there are still, you know, some some debates on on how accurate it is, and is it accurate enough for your your needs and your purposes, and is it as accurate as the Aura Ring? Um, I think for all of the products that are out there, even though Whoop might not be perfect, Apple might not be perfect, Aura might not be perfect. Um, it starts to come down whether you get consistency in data and whether it helps you gain insights into the real low-hanging fruit. For look, for a lot of people, it's really how much sleep did you get? How interrupted was it? How many times did you wake up? How interrupted was it? Did you fall asleep or just lay in bed stressing about what's coming up <laughs> or did you actually get to sleep? And so for those purposes, even if they're not perfectly accurate, um, I think I think Aura, Apple, and um the um, whoop are all giving insights that are relevant for how much sleep a person has. There is a problem of over-indexing. This happens a lot. Athletes, you know, wake up in the morning. I've, I've used Aura as well. And sometimes you got to be a little careful with a pretty intense athlete. Um, where they wake up, they take a look at their phone and they're like, oh, crap. Oh yeah. crap! My day screwed. My week screwed. My all oh, I did not need that, you know. And they just fall apart on you. And um, right. I love the special forces approach to like sleep and recovery. That getting sleep and recovery is good. Whenever you can get it, get it. But <laughs> you do not need to have good sleep to perform at the absolute highest level. You know, yeah. you are special forces. You can. To command a regiment, these boys no sleep two days. You can climb up a ridge. If you're a sniper, hang out for three hours, make the shot, come home. Like there's no problem. That's how good you are. And uh, I love coaches that build up that resiliency that connects well with technology instead of the some of the newer coaches. I think they kind of they kind of can flip. And they're not ready for the athlete who gets a little bit wild and crazy about their numbers. Um, yeah, it's kind of the hierarchy of needs of building an athlete, you know, from the bottom up. Yes. You know, building that solid confidence and then layering on top of that the more advanced type of things. But uh, don't let them override the base. Uh, moving on to the next uh, kind of, I don't know, some buzz in the 
endurance sports world these days is glucose monitors, you know, continuous yeah. glucose monitors, especially the super sapiens, which is available in Europe, but not in the United States. Mm. Um, I have actually been wearing it myself. So trying to learn some more about, you know, how my body reacts, et cetera. Um, your experience with them and do you see value within endurance sports? Yeah, it's a really, it, it, we knew it was coming. Um, there's actually three companies. Um, Levels Health out of New York is a really interesting okay. one. Um, and they've got, you know, I think Tesla and NASA, you know, kind of engineers working with them to build up a really interesting uh, dashboard and platform for monitoring uh, blood glucose. They're, they're all using Dexcom or the Freestyle Libra, the Abbott yep. um, sensors. Mm -hmm. Those are the two major sensors that are being used, these little microneedle array sensors. Um, Super Sapiens. Um, and then there's another one, um, a bunch of the Stanford crew are tied in with called um, January, I think it's January A1 or January 1. I think it's relatively hmm. recent. It's just come out um, with some really smart people working around it. Um, and so the first, the first thing obviously is, can you get accurate blood glucose measurements? Um, do, do they drift? Are, are they good at detecting lows and are they a lot of these are made for diabetics so they have to detect hyperglycemia like high glucose mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily tuned you know for low blood glucose and so i'm still waiting for some nice mm. kind of validation studies like when it's hot you know and your skin's hot and you're out in the heat um whether there's there's drift um and just you know when when can you rely on those numbers and when can you not um, mm -hmm. The concepts are really cool. One one um, frequency of feeding is really really interesting. And usually, whenever you eat and there's some, you know, some carbohydrate in what you eat, um, there's a little bit of a, a blood glucose swing. And uh, to use these to kind of detect the timing, uh, the frequency of meals, it makes it really really easy for for coaches to just see what's going on. Late late night feeding's not great. Um, you know, daytime feeding's good. For people that are trying to train in low carbohydrate states, you can kind of see did they have any carbohydrate before they went out, you know, on um, those rides. Um, so it's it's pretty early days. It's it's exploratory right now, without a doubt. And it reminds me a little bit of some of the stories we heard about fetal heart rate monitors. Mm. Um, fetal heart rate monitors came out, I think, in the seventies, and they were going to change obstetrics. They were going to, you know. No, no more stillbirth, safer for the mother. They're going to monitor the heart rate of the baby before it was born. It was going to give all these new insights. But when the technology came, the industry wasn't totally ready for it. And midwives were delivering lots of babies. But now that they had fetal heart rate monitors, they needed like specialized nurses and doctors. And people say it got over medicalized. And mm. there was a run for over a decade of more C-sections than ever. And it was wow. disturbing. People didn't know what to do with the data. You, you know, you don't want right. a baby to die. So everybody was like C-section, emergency C-section. And wow. they said it took another decade for the industry to stabilize. And they also ostracized all these wonderful midwives who were kind of deemed inappropriate for this new high-tech world. But now huh. you see midwives finding their way back, back in. And so sometimes you get some tech and there's nothing wrong with the tech. It's great technology. Like people use feel heart rate monitors all the time now, but its introduction was incredibly disruptive. And I wonder sometimes if we're going to see that with glucose meters. I mean, nutrition is a bit 
Um, and it's, uh, it's emotional and people are passionate and they really believe in certain things. And I wonder if the continuous blood glucose meters will, will take people into some kind of dark areas before they kind of come back and realize what's normal and, so, and how to use the data, how to really use the data. Right. I was wondering about using the data more really in the racing and training. Is there like, can you foresee a particular zone where you're trying to keep your blood glucose for optimal training and racing? And and it can be like almost this reminder that, oh, you know, warning, it goes too low. It's time to take more yeah. in. That I could see that as being very positive. Yeah. And and it, it could. Um, but again, it'd be really fun and super successful uh, tour riders. We don't really know the normal profiles of highly, highly successful you know, sprint jersey winners and, um, you know, the hill climbing winners. And um, we don't know the the GC winners. We've never seen profiles of, you know, all of the successful cyclists in Grand Tours. What was it like? Maybe they, maybe, maybe dipping in blood glucose is almost obligatory. Maybe it happens all the time. Um, and it's not that big of a deal. Or like you said, maybe, um, these are moments to be avoided. And if you do avoid them, you're able to build resiliency into your, um, your tour. Good. I know it also does not track flow. I mean, if you're pouring a bunch of water into a bucket, but you have a big hole at the bottom, your absolute value might be low, but your, your flow rate is yeah. really high. Is, you know, the, the muscles are being, are uptaking as much as you can put in, but the reading might be low. That's right. So you could have good flux. You could have your input and output are both high. And so your overall concentration is low. And so this is not like labeled glucose where you can identify how much carbohydrate is being, you know, burned or utilized. Um, it's just a, a, a measure, a concentration. To, right. to be fair though, it is an important concentration. Like the brain, the, the brain loves glucose. Your eyes, you know how they work. They love glucose. There's a lot of <laughs> tissues that are very um, gl glucose sensitive. And so being hypoglycemic is, is not a lot of fun. E even if you had, you know, kind of flux happening, you had like high turnover at a very low level, there's going to be some tissues that don't, that don't like it. But right. it's exciting. It's brand, it's brand new. It's got a lot of people talking and you can see, Man, companies are jumping on it. Silicon Valley—they're—they're they're gonna they're jumping all over it, you know. Um, and I want to see—I'm waiting for the study, the Dexcom Abbott, you know, um, comparison accuracy and validity um, during prolonged endurance sport. I really want to see those data. Right. Well, hey, another uh, kind of technology that's come out is this core body temperature device. You, you just—I don't know if you've seen it. You strap it onto your heart rate strap and supposedly gives you your core body temp. No. Um, have you had any, it's, I think it's called core. Well, and, I've seen the, so I've definitely seen the thermal pills. We've used those quite right. a bit. Um, yep. so this, I would have to take a look at, see, you're Anyways. teaching me something new. This is really, yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, okay. So theoretically, let's say we can, um, accurately without the pills or even with the pills, um, heat adaptation, you know, benefits, I've heard about, you know, the craze of indoor cycling and, and a lot of folks will benefit from that simply because they're, they're taking, they're doing, you know, hotter training. Mm. Uh, and then some, some of the teams have actually taken it to the greater extent where by doing a morning 90, you know, 
two hour session with extra clothes on, no, no open windows, no fans and like getting the body temperature up, um, in order to raise blood plasma volume and yes, et cetera. Thoughts around that. Have you actually implemented and, and we have Tokyo coming up, yes. you know, uh, heat adaptation. We, we, lots of our listeners go, well, hopefully lots go to Kona, Hawaii for Ironman or yeah, they, yeah. they are preparing for a race in Florida, et cetera. Um, two things, I guess, like any tips, protocols around heat adaptation. And then even if I'm not training for a hot race, can't it just help me out by being mm. heat adapt adapted, um, therefore raising my blood plasma volume and having all those extra benefits that come along with it? Yeah, it's, um, there's some really good, there's some really good uh, topics to discuss in there. And uh, one of them is the, um, the plasma volume expansion you talk about when you move into hot environments, um, it can happen pretty quickly. Like within about three to five days, you can start to see significant mm. plasma volume expansion. And there's huh. okay. something called um, albumin enrichment. And so albumin is a protein that's produced by the liver and it um, it has what's called oncotic drive. It kind of is like a, an electrolyte. It holds water. And so if you produce... Um, hmm. and release albumin into the um, vascular system, it helps trap and hold um, water. And it's believed to be a really nice early adaptation for plasma volume expansion, which helps support sweating and evaporative cooling. Um, so it all, it all makes a lot of sense. And there appears to be some advantages to that rapid plasma volume um, expansion. So um, th there can be some, some benefits. The risk with heat training is um, we typically, you know, you can imagine going through the Olympics. I got, you know, athletes ready for like Atlanta was hot. Um, mm -hmm. Athens was really hot. Beijing, we thought it was going to be hot. It was not that hot. Um, and you're right, Tokyo could be a cooker. Um, so one of the lessons I think we learned was um, although heat camps are great for familiarization, um, and they're also good for some physiological adaptations associated with acclimatization, especially the plasma volume you just spoke about. They're also, you know, the familiarization is a lot about pacing. The big problem in the heat is people, uh, they don't understand how to pace. It's way better to negative split in hot mm. conditions. Start out easier than you think, come home okay. harder, you know, than you were prepared to. Um, but what, the the real um you know the, the double-edged sword here is there's something about heat camps that are just exhausting and certainly we've seen athletes just overcook themselves so they go into a heat camp and they want the plasma expansion and they're doing the hot training um but the whole environment's hot like you said they're in hawaii and the the rooms are hot the day is hot and heat has a way of just draining you. And whether it's a mm -hmm. neural aspect of, of fatigue or not, I'm not super clear on. Um, but you can get these, this real persistent fatigue in people. Athletes can lose a motivation. And um, I've definitely seen athletes go into important competitions in hot weather after overdoing, you know, like a big four-week out, you know, heat camp. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, their plasma volume expanded. And they look like they should be fit, and they're super familiar with the with the heat. But it's like the whole system has just been turned down. The other thing is, if you ever have an event, like if anybody gets you know 40, 41 degrees Celsius, 
in intervals or a practice race or something where they're super motivated and they get really hot, if you have like an event or you feel nauseous afterwards or you've really overdone it, it, it appears that the body can protect itself very quickly and you can be flat for quite a while. So I'm into it. I, I like I like using, you know, people can use saunas and do it passively. Right. They can do the, you know, all the microclimate stuff where you wear a lot of clothes and you do some some intervals and some higher intensity work to get really, really hot. Um, and you, we've done the studies as well. We measured hemoglobin mass. We've measured plasma volume. You can measure albumin. You can definitely see these adaptations taking place. Um they contribute to aerobic, um, you know, capacity and they contribute to performance. But if you, if you overdo it, you just gotta be really careful. You overdo it. You'll end up all dressed up, but not wanting to go out. It'll just be flat. right. Cool. Very cool. Um, what are you telling a, a totally different subject mm. supplements? Yeah. What are you telling? I've, I've read about AIS categorization, yeah. A, B, C, D, maybe explain this. And, and what are you, what's your advice out there to more amateurs and age groupers? Yeah. So um, the, you're right. It's probably a good place to start. Um, I've sat on the supplement committee. Uh, Luis Burke gets full credit for really driving this approach. Uh, a supplements are vetted by a um, panel of scientists and uh they're basically um, they get into category A based on on evidence on on review papers and multiple papers that have looked at you know placebo controlled intervention studies for either you know helping your strength or helping your fatigue resistance or helping your sleep whatever and so the A category are they're safe they're they're um, effective and um, you know they're they're totally legal. And um, these seem to be the kind of things, you know, like like creatine or carbohydrate supplement for the endurance athlete. They're they're kind of well accepted that they work. Um, the B supplements are um, are safe and they're potentially potentially effective, um, but the evidence is just not really there. And they might be in kind of nuancy um, scenarios, like it would be um, bicarbonate in these particular events it could help, but in these events it probably doesn't help. Um, the C is that um, there's really no evidence that it helps um, at all. And so um, hmm. it, it, you're kind of probably wasting your time. There might be some individual nuance where you get a little bit of a run out of it. It's still um, legal. It's probably safe, but there's just no evidence that it works. And then the Ds are ergolytic. They usually go the other way. There's something hmm. about them that um, blocks adaptations or prevents uh, performance from being at its highest value. And so as new supplements would come out and as new meta-reviews get published, we there'd be a panel of us who would review them and Luis would make final decision and they'd get kind of categorized into those areas. What I usually tell people, you know, with supplements is um, the, uh, the supplement, the name means something, supplement. It supplements great training, it supplements a great diet, and it supplements um, good sleep. And I see a lot of people use supplements and usually a lot of supplements as kind of like um, my life's a mess, my training sucks, everything's, <laughs> everything's mm -hmm. crap. And I'm just going to eat a bunch of supplements and see if I can get away with it. What the hell? You know, I'll just, I'll just use supplements instead of, and I think rarely, rarely, if ever, is that a good way forward for those of us that advise athletes, we usually try to um, wait for moments 
uh, where the athlete is vulnerable. So if the athlete is winning, he's not vulnerable. If the athlete is losing or having a problem or disappointed in a result, that's when they're vulnerable. So that's a great time to kind of retune supplement advice. Um, mm. And I, we usually, we've tried stuff at the AIS where it's like, if you can eat like this, then you will open yourself up and be available for taking supplements. And a lot of the AIS athletes were development athletes. So it was trying to get them to, to, to buy in, to get as much as you can from whole foods, get as much as you can from a good, healthy lifestyle, and then just layer a couple supplements in on top to try to, to help you. The one thing I can tell you is I've done a, a lot of reviews and lectured a lot on belief effects, placebo effects. Right. They're super powerful. Probably one of the <laughs> most interesting series of studies I've, I've read are the research where they give you a placebo caffeine tablet and they tell you how many milligrams of caffeine you're getting, whether it's like three, six, or nine milligrams per kg. And then they do these time trials and it's all a placebo, but right. the belief graduates. So if you believe you're on nine milligrams, you perform better than six, which is better than three. And all of it's <laughs> just a placebo. So, um, I'm usually pretty careful if somebody, if somebody goes, should I use this? I go like, have you ever used it before? No. Do you think it will help you? And they're like, oh my God, I've heard this stuff's amazing. You know, I'm like, right. do you want to try it? As, as long as it's safe, you know, and the, the big thing in when you get up to pro sport and elite sport is, you know, inadvertent positives. You do not want any supplements that, you know, could potentially be, be laced or have right. impurities that could throw you off. Um, but no, it's a, it's a, it's a great topic. And I think probably a great final comment on supplements was uh, me and one of the sports scientists that worked in with the old green edge team um, mm -hmm. told me, he said, it seems like we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about supplements and such a minimum amount of time talking about important aspects of preparing athletes to be fitter. Right. It's like you can spend yeah. two nights talking about supplements and no one's talking about the taper or the loading program at all. Yeah. Well, and back to the placebo effect in the mind, I heard you say like, you know, lie your way to winning, you know, just giving the confidence into the athlete, you know, can be, can be such a big motivator and actually work. And you even brought up surgery. If the athlete, it was like you did like fake yeah. surgeries or something yeah. on one yeah. knee and yeah. Yeah, and they got better. <laughs> it's incredible. Once you dive into, you know, there's a there's a number of books. The Cure is one of them, and uh, there's there's some great uh, studies um, that have come out of Harvard um, and looked at the power of the placebo. And everybody says, oh, it's only a placebo. But what they're finding now is that um, all the brain science is starting to demonstrate and and show that when you believe in something, especially if it, when it comes to depression and when it comes to pain, and funny enough, elite sport, depression is giving up on hope and pain is a, mm -hmm. is a very you know, sensation that you, you're not enjoying. Mm -hmm. And in sport, especially cycling, you, you know, <laughs> the Tour de France is a big lesson and I'm racing against you. I'm trying to depress you. I'm trying to make you give up hope and I'm right. trying to keep hope. And wow. it's going to be very uncomfortable, you know, Hold <laughs> the Madeline, we're going to go up these big long climbs and everyone's going to be uncomfortable. And so, if you believe in what you're doing, what they're showing now is neurotransmitters within the brain, these endogenous opiates, are secreted by your own 
you know, nerve cells and you are essentially like self-medicating yourself. It's, it's, it's like you're taking a little dose of like heroin or something to, to change yeah. the brain state. And so it's actually brain biochemistry versus in the old days, it was like, oh, you know, whatever, he believes in something. So um, you got to be really careful taking something away from an athlete that they believe in. Um, you got to be right. very careful about doing that. And also you got to be open. If somebody believes in something profoundly, um, you've got to be able to, to, to work with them and tolerate it and, and support it. You can't roll your eyes and run interference. You've got to support it. Right. That probably makes its way into recovery techniques. I mean, there's so many different recovery techniques, I believe, that are maybe of all equal value, but you can't do eight different things every day after training. You have to no. pick and choose what you believe in. And and I, I suspect, you know, based on what you just said, you you tend to like feed that to the athlete. Like, yes, yes, that that does work. Continue that. Whereas to a different athlete, it's gonna be something a different technique. Yeah, I I love believing in people. You know, I got I get in all these arguments. People go, does massage work? Why are there's all these masseurs on the Tour de France? You know, you know, I've been on national teams and like, can't we <laughs> save money? Do we really need a masseur? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about a masseur is they're a person, you know, and, um, right. you know, what does a little kid do? And they fall and they cry. And what happens? Mom, hopefully comes over, picks them up and they hug them. They hold them, you know, they're like, it's going to be okay. And, um, you know, they might kiss it, you know, the, they're like, you're going to be fine. Look at you. And I never had a swanier do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because they do it in a different way, but the cyclist right. falls and he cries and the swanies there and they wrap them up and they clean the wound and, you know, they massage them and they support them and they listen to them and they, they're by them and they feed them and um you know a good soigneur is amazing the other thing is as they do you know um their massage they they're sometimes talking or just listening and people can kind of debrief and unload and kind of lighten their psychological load as well as have some very pleasing sensations from the massage and that can allow them to go to bed i usually feel like you know even in the nba we talked a lot about what's the best recovery um, right they can do compression boots. They can do cold water. There's a lot of things you can do in the MBA. I, I love massage if you have a good massage therapist because I love the the person to person kind of bonding and support. And um, and if you can calm yourself and connect with somebody in an authentic way and kind of relax and have somebody reassure you things are going to be all right, you can come back for more the next day. I feel like that all contributes to sleep. And when you're getting good sleep, everything's good. Everything's good. If people are in pain, you got to get rid of the pain. Sometimes ice is, you know, in basketball, they get beat up, bumped. And right. if you can ice it, you can kind of alleviate sensations of pain. Um, sometimes those compression boots, they feel really good. And so tired, sore, achy legs, it feels better. Um, so anything that helps you alleviate those sensations, regardless of the mechanisms, I think can be very helpful. Hmm. Well, Dave, I got 20 more things to ask you, but we sort of have to wrap things up here. Yeah. I've been asking you about all this technology. Is there anything that you've been excited about seeing or, or something that you are really looking forward to that someday we might have? Yeah, I think and you I think you guys are pretty close. Um with the the work that's been going on with um with training peaks. I feel like um, you know, kind of as a as a 
as a, as a concept piece, one thing that I've always been really interested in is how athletes on pro teams, you know, whether it's basketball or the Olympics, there's usually, there's going to be more and more support staff. Um, right. And, um, it's really interesting to think of all the support staff, their brains as sensors and that you've got a network of sensors. And there's some really interesting research out of university of Pennsylvania by a uh, professor Damon Santola. And he, he studies wisdom of crowds and um, he's done some very interesting and clever work on kind of iterative polling. So we, you, me, there might be six of us and we're around a cyclist and we may have a question like, how are they coping? Mm. How are they holding up? You know, oh. are they are they holding up all right or do we need to intervene? Should they abandon the tour or should they stay in it? What should we do? <laughs> really hard questions, really mm. difficult questions. And what goes on right now is there's some really organic polling going on. The coaches will be like over dinner, hey, real quick, tell me about so-and-so. What did you see today? Kind of thought he was really losing it up the climb. No, he mm. did this once before, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're just talking. Right. You've done it. You're just talking. And you're trying to come up with a consensus with a you're trying to come up with an answer to a very very difficult problem and what damon's done is he's allowed he came up with this way of polling where everybody could vote we could say should this should this person abandon the tour or should he stay in and everybody could could vote and you might put it on a likert scale like i totally think he should come out or he can come out, but I'm not fussed about it or definitely not keep him in. He's fine. You know, and what happens is everybody votes. I don't know your vote. You don't know my vote, but I know the central tendency. And then we get a chance to discuss and then we vote again and we see the central tendency and we vote again. And by the third vote, he's shown like how many jelly beans in a jar, how many calories in a meal, how much is the price of a car? He's done stuff with predicting Google stock, like on you know <laughs> in, in next week. Um, the central tendency from this this crowdsourcing, even with smaller groups, seems to be very enlightening and very powerful. But what I like about it is the message you go to the athlete with is that all of us on this team have been talking about you and thinking about you, and collectively as a group, we feel like this might be the best way to go. And it's kind of like the tribal council, like the wisdom of elders type of a thing. And mm. um, I feel like that's a, a much easier conversation to have than to say, I think you should quit, or I think you should do this, or I, I think, you know, how fatigued is the athlete? We all feel like you're really tired right now. All of us, mm -hmm. your score, our average score from our group is super high on you. And either you're tired or you're not motivated, but either way, it's not great, you know? And it, it opens up a really interesting conversation. So I feel like in the future, what we're going to see is I think we're going to see some really interesting ways to tap into uh, the wisdom that comes from all of these super experienced coaches and support staff all working together, but their opinions are kind of isolated and hidden. And it's there with the hierarchies that are in sport, it's hard to fully express yourself, but this lets everybody give an open and honest opinion on what they think. And I think the tech is going to let us use that information in conjunction with all the sensors to get a better picture of the, of where the athlete is at. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I've seen the team of experts approach at, you know, tour de France level, you know, work, work great. And to try and bring that to more and more athletes where they can tap into a team of experts is definitely, a, an area um, of expansion for sure that hopefully we can bring to more athletes and, and you're effectively doing that now in your day job that 
appear on, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And what we're doing, we've got a like a little team around some of these, you know, Bay Area executives, and um, yeah, we're doing the same thing. You know, like, is are you going to be prepared to go hike a big mountain in the Himalayas? You know, what do we all collectively think? Is that being a bit ambitious, or do we think we can get you ready for it? Um, right. And um, you know, I think good performance directors, as you kind of, you know, this is Jim Miller's really good at it too. Just you know, you 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 learn to really pick good people to work with and then really listen to them, you know, really mm. listen to what everyone's opinion really is. Um, and that's how you get your, your best insights. I always say I like to hire people smarter than myself. Yes. For me, that's pretty easy to do. I'm finding it easier and easier. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that was so great. Um, hopefully listeners got some great insights. Um, yeah, thank you so much for all your great wisdom. Not a problem at all. It was great to catch up. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. <laughs>